<laughs> All righty. So <clears throat> here's what I want to do. I want to try to tackle at least in large part the subject of homosexuality today. The difficulty for me is that there's so much I could say and there's so much nuance and different dimensions of the topic that I could go into, but I'm going to try to hopefully leave it in a way where it's clear uh, from a biblical perspective. And then I'm banking on both in my conversation last night with transgenderism and then also this morning with homosexuality, I'm banking on the Q&A to flush out any questions or uncertainties that you may have or, hey, you didn't really get to intersex or whatever that might be. So uh, those are all answers that we have in the scripture. And one thing I want to maybe just read for you before we get rolling in God's word is... Uh, I've recently was studying the book of Ecclesiastes, and one of the things that I love is in Ecclesiastes 1.9, it says that there is nothing new under the sun. And my great comfort is that whenever we approach a topic that's culturally pervasive, which just means popular, uh, whenever we reach a topic like homosexuality or transgenderism, we can find great comfort that this is something that is not necessarily new. The Bible speaks to it, and the Bible gives us everything we need pertaining to a life of godliness. So we never have to feel like we have to moonwalk away from the difficult topics in our culture. We know that we have a living and breathing, active Word of God that has really covered everything we need to know how to live a life of faithfulness. Well, I, I want to start by, first of all, talking about sex in general. Uh, I think it would be unfair and maybe irresponsible to start talking about sex in its deviant forms. First of all, we need to talk about why sex is a good gift. I'm just going to rattle off a few points and kind of going to lay these down as the foundation for our topic on homosexuality. Number one, sex is a good gift given by a good God. Maybe you've grown up in the church, and if you've grown up in the church, something happens somewhere along the lines, depending on the family that you grew up in. It's almost like a no-no subject. Sex is for mommies and daddies, so we don't really talk about it too much. Let's not like really cultivate any sort of curiosity. And so in many ways, and I think even in my own life, I have wonderful parents. Sex was something I did not talk about. It was like, if I heard the word, it was very awkward um, because I grew up in really out of the purity culture. Don't cultivate curiosity. Don't talk about it. And probably, I mean, even I had heard, I, I got to talk from my friends at, in junior high. My brother explained stuff to me. And I remember asking my dad about sex when I was 14. And I have the greatest dad in the world. And I just remember asking him some questions. And it was like a very awkward conversation. And what happens in that type of an environment, especially in a Christian setting, is you begin to look at the subject of sex with much shame rather than understanding, first and foremost, God made sex and you were sexual before you were sinful. Sin sex is not a byproduct of the fall. It was made pre-fall to glorify God and pleasure is God's idea. We, the Bible both begins and ends with a marriage ceremony. And one of the things we'll talk about more at the end is marriage is the Bible's central metaphor in many ways. You could look at it. That's why it matters to God. The Bible begins with a marriage ceremony. It ends with a marriage ceremony. And for all of eternity, we are going to celebrate a marriage between Christ and his church. Marriage, marriage is not just a, a peripheral type of thing that's important to God. It matters to God. And that's why it's one of the main anchors of the grand narrative of scripture. The first command in the Bible is what? No, to be fruitful and multiply. That's the greatest command, yes. But the first command in the Bible has to do with marriage. How do you have many babies? Well, you do that by having sex. And this is, I mean, we have to look at this and understand that this is who God is. The first command that God gives in the Bible includes sexual relations between a man and a wife. And so if you've grown up with this type of a subject with much shame, this is awkward, you can't read past the first page of your Bible and understand that God made it. And do you know why he made it? For his glory and for our good. For human flourishing and pleasure was his idea. Secondly, Satan works to not to destroy, but to distort God's good gifts. Satan works not to destroy, but to distort God's good gifts. In 2 Corinthians 4, we are told that what the devil fears more than anything, you know what that is? It's for you seeing the glory of God for who he really is. It's to see God with the spirit of the mind. Here's what 
C.S. Lewis says in the screw tape letters around this idea that Satan works not to destroy but to distort God's good gifts. He says, the devil's grand strategy against pleasure is to twist it, to get us to misuse it. And then in Screwtape's letters, if you're not familiar with the book, it's basically a chief demon writing to one of another demon, and he's telling him how to really try to mess with the world that he lives in. And he says this, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. It's God's ground. He says, I know that we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures, and all of our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. And there, hence, we are always trying to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is least natural and least representative of its maker and ultimately least pleasurable. He says our formula is simple, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's Satan's job. Satan works not to destroy what God has made, but to distort it. And that's what we're seeing with sex. Uh, third, I, I think this is worth saying, Sometimes people go, well, why are you picking on homosexuality? Do you know that passages, and it includes greed and disrespect in Romans 1, why are we picking on homosexuality, or why are we picking on sexual sin? All sin separates us from God, but you have to understand biblically, sexual sin is unlike every other sin. All sin separates you from God, but not all sin is the same in the category of the offense and the searing of the conscience before God. There are eight vice lists in the New Testament. What I mean by a vice list is that there are eight times in the New Testament where it describes the transformation that takes place between someone who is unregenerate, which means does not know God, and does know God. And in every single one of those vice lists, sexual immorality is included. Even in Acts, when their people are trying to figure out how to operate in the Gentile world, they write to the church and they say, well, let's just give them these basic fundamentals. Stop worshiping idols and be sexually pure. We don't really know where to start. I've been living in a pagan culture with ritual prostitution, many idols. We've all been involved in ceremonial raping and you know, prostitution. How do we begin the Christian life? And then just, let's just boil it down to this. Don't worship the idols anymore. Be sexually pure. Sexual purity is so fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. And so while every sin separates us from God, not all sin is the same in regards to its offense. And part of that is because you do not own your own body. God made your body. And if you're a Christian, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so the thought in 1 Corinthians 6, and we can talk about this more in the Q&A, the thought about this in 1 Corinthians 6 is that when Paul says, shall I take the members of Christ and bind them to a prostitute, may genetah, may it never be, the strongest negative emphasis in the entire Bible. He's saying this, can you imagine Jesus Christ staring at a computer screen with pornography? No. Then neither should the person who is a temple of the Holy Spirit bind Christ by that very action to something which is so antithetical to the character of God. Part of the reason that sexual sin is unlike every other sin is because we, it says every other sin in 1 Corinthians 6, is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It says every other sin is outside the body. But the, the sexually immoral person is sinning against his own body. Sexual sin is unlike every other sin. And that's why the church needs to know what to say about these important topics and understand that this is not just one of many sins. What's the difference? We also live in a world of covetousness and greed and materialism. No, this is un, those are tragic, but this is unlike any other sin. And the Bible speaks about that very, very clearly. And the fool underestimates the aggressive nature of sexual sin. Number four, sexual purity is fundamental to sanctification. If you want to know God's will for your life, it's very simple because it doesn't need to be found. It's revealed in scripture. First Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, comma, your sanctification. Okay, Paul, tell me how that happens, comma, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual, Im sexual purity is so synonymous with holiness that it begins and reveals God's will for your life. So we can talk about homosexuality and transgenderism, but regarding sexual purity in a fundamental level, this also includes pornography. So we can look at the world and go, what are they thinking? But this also includes the nook and crannies of our hidden heart. And so we have to evaluate there and we have to approach the subject with humility because we can also be categorized by lust and not struggle with the same things that they are. 
Number five, if you are a Christian, you are free from the reign of sexual sin in your life. No one is truly a slave to sin that is a Christian. That's antithetical. You are either a slave of sin or a slave to Jesus Christ in Romans. So when someone says they're addicted to sin, we might use that in a term where because they, there's a level of dopamine that releases and it creates these neurological channels in their brain due to neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is a medical term that means that every single time someone looks at pornography, there is a release of dopamine that literally rewires the chemical channels in your brain. That's where we start to use the word addicted. But the reason I don't use the word addicted is because there is no such thing as a Christian that is truly addicted where they have no choice but to sin. Because God has delivered you from the reign of sin. So that is an incongruence with what we would affirm theologically. You might be severely tempted. You might be in a season of sin. You might very, you know, be significantly tempted. But there's no Christian that can't not sin because God has delivered you from the reign of sin. Number six, knowing God intimately is the ultimate antidote for sexual sin. You can say no to something, say no to something, say no to something, but biblically speaking, God's will for your life is not just to resist sin, it's for you to renew your mind so that what you love is righteousness. If you're growing up in an environment where all they're telling you to do is don't look at this, don't look at this, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, that's not the Christian life. We are to make, Romans 13, 14, no provision for the flesh, but we are also, Romans 12, 1, to renew our mind. And the goal that Jonathan Edwards speaks to very clearly in his book, Religious Affections, is that the goal of the Christian life is so that our affections are transformed, not just our behavior is modified. And if you've grown up just hearing no to certain behaviors, you're missing, I think, the power in the Christian life because God has given us his word so that what we love and long to do is what we ought to do. Number seven, Scripture is the priority of those who seek purity. Scripture is the priority of those who seek purity. If God's word is not your priority, neither is your sexual purity. Okay, I want to lay that out. Now, we're going to talk about homosexuality, and broadly speaking, this is a little bit of a unique subject to tackle because I find no giddies in necessarily like delivering, and I mentioned this to you last night, I'm not in my normal format. This is actually a little bit of a tougher uh, style for me, and part of that is because I'm used to just walking through a passage of Scripture, and I could for sure do that in 1 Corinthians 6. I could do that from Romans 1. I could do that from Leviticus or Deuteronomy 22 in regards to homosexuality. But I think at times there's two different worlds, that, and one of them could be uh, people that shy away from the topic in general, and then people that know what the Bible says and love what the Bible says, and it's almost, it almost is delivered as a zing towards people that, that struggle with this. And so when I'm talking about homosexuality, even in a room like this, I assume that there are three types of people. There are, am I ringing a little bit? Am I good? Okay. Um, there are, people, there are three types of people, people that know the truth, that are convinced about what the Bible says. There are people that hate the truth, that maybe know what the Bible says and severely disagree. And there are people that are unsure of the truth, people that can't quite put their finger on the issue of homosexuality or on sexuality in general. They're on the fence. They might have their own personal struggle or have a close relationship with someone that identifies with the struggle. And they're looking for a lifeline that says you can have a relationship with Christ and yet still struggle with this sin. And I think I want to speak directly to that third category of people, people that are really unsure of what the Bible says, and maybe they know some answers but don't necessarily know how to articulate it. I want to start by just talking about, um, in general, kindness. We live in a, in a world where... Um, Tolerance and affirmation is synonymous with kindness. I just would tell you that the most unloving thing you could ever do is to not tell someone that the homosexual lifestyle is an abomination to God. Um, there's no love in sweeping sin under the rug ever. And it might sound loving and it might sound like it's relationally building or bridging, but it's tremendously... Uh, a horrible situation because when you cut off someone from understanding that their behavior and identity is sin, you cut them off from the source of salvation. When they're comfortable in their sin, they will never seek a savior. To give you an example uh, before I continue is two years ago, I did, uh, maybe three years ago, I was doing a Q&A at Hume Lake and a girl asked me, she's a 10th grader, uh, she asked me what the Bible said about her being a lesbian. 
And uh, I just said, oh man, I, well, I want to be clear with you. And on a quest of brevity, I never want to divorce my answer from the necessary tone and love and compassion that the Bible would have. But I just said very clearly, uh, that is antithetical to God's design. He created it for man to be with a woman. And she goes, well, I, I, you know, like I understand it's God's design, uh, but, you know, like can we operate outside of that design? I said, no, there's no such thing as a person who lives in a habitual, ongoing lesbian lifestyle that can actually have assurance of their salvation because First John says if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with him. But if we walk in the darkness, we don't know him. And we know that we are saved when we look at the fruit of our life and say, man, we're walking with God. Because that's just that we're not saved by that works, but we are that is the evidence of life and that's been changed. And she left Hume Lake early that week. That was on Wednesday. She wrote me a note on Saturday saying that I'm going to kill myself today. And when people find the note of why I killed myself, uh, I'm going to say, Johnny made me do it. Johnny made me do it. And um, I remember writing her back saying, oh, you know, like, don't kill yourself, um, the Bible. And I sent her all these verses that, that I'll mention later on. Um, but she just said, I'm going to kill myself. When people ask me why, I'm going to say, Johnny made me do it. Um, I was preaching at a conference two years later. This would have been last year. And at the time when I had met this girl, she was, you know, full emo out, black, you know, like sleeves, you know, everything, black hair, black eyeliner. This girl comes up to me and uh, she had just been done, got done singing at like a thing I was preaching at. And I, she said, do you know me? And I said, you look so familiar. Um, and she said, my name is this. And instantly it was like, this is the girl. And she just said, I wanted to tell you, I came here, um, I came to tell you that um, after a year and a half of basically suicidal thoughts in and out of 5150s, uh, six months ago I gave my life to the Lord. Um, and I said, what changed? And she just said, well, for years I had been in a church that had told me that my lesbianism wasn't God's design, but God still loved me. And so that pacified her living as something that was outside God's design, but it was the first time ever I had ever heard that this was a grievous offense to a holy God, and I couldn't continue to live in such a way. And it took that type of clarity for me to be confronted with the scripture. But what happens is on a quest of love, and I know the church, on a quest of love, we accommodate people. We don't want them to leave the church prematurely. So we just kind of hang, we kind of leave them some slack. And that's the most unloving thing you could ever do. And part of the reason, I said this yesterday to students at Bakersfield Christian, one of the reasons why so many students leave the church at 18 is because they never had a chance to reject Jesus Christ at 15. And that's a good thing. It's far better for someone to reject Jesus Christ and walk down a road of depression and suicidal thought, knowing what Jesus demands, than for them to be 18 and go to somewhere, some other place and go, wait a second, I never believed this at all. Because they never had to make an actual decision to follow Christ. There is this massive movement currently to appease the guilt and release the lust of homosexuality unchecked and there's going to be other different arguments about you know there's no this is about committed relationships now the bible condemns what is no longer you know uh this type of pederasty which is pedophilia but the relationships that are defined homosexuals today is one of monogamous committed loving relationships and this is what they're selling to children in elementary schools and i just want to speak about that for just a moment and then we're going to start looking at passages and scriptures, and I don't want to tell you too many stories, but I think this is helpful. Three weeks ago, I, I'm doing an interview for a radio ministry, and uh, I typically don't have my makeup done, but there was a woman doing my makeup, and um, she asked me uh, some questions, and when anybody ever asks me what I do, I don't say I'm a pastor. I just say, I preach about Jesus. It's like the most like, you know, like out there thing you can say. I say, I preach about Jesus, and she says, so you are regenerate. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, um, it was just a surprising answer. I was in the middle of LA and she goes, you are also born again. And she tells me her story. She's a former lesbian living in LA. You know, she's been a lesbian for 30 years. And I asked her how she came to know the Lord. And she said, I was doing someone else's makeup and he was a previous homosexual. And I had known him to be a homosexual and he was doing my makeup and he told me about what God had done in his life. And she began to tell me over the course of, I don't know, it took me like 45 minutes to, to hide all my flaws. 
I, uh, she began to tell me about the, just what it is in, in the homosexual environment. She says, we present it to you as what we want as committed, loving relationships between a couple for a long time. But she says, you have to understand that the homosexual movement is defined by hookup culture. And here's some stats that I think would be helpful. The average homosexual has relationships with more than 500 different sexual partners. In one study, the average homosexual has 300 partners a year, almost one a day, and that's different people. 30% of homosexuals have had more than 1,000 sexual partners, and many of them have had over 1,500. They stop counting when people reach 1,600. Currently, a study from, or an older study from San Francisco, where AIDS was really born and developed in our country, it says that homosexuals were spending on average three nights a week in something called a bathhouse. These are conservative figures, and each night they would have 10 to 30 different sexual encounters. And half of the people that they have sexual relationships with are anonymous. They've never seen their face, and they don't know their name. And she's telling me these things, and I begin to do my own research. And they moved them there, and this is kind of what happens uh, over and over again. Let me read you something else as well. And I just want you to get a see a, a, a kind of a taste of what we're dealing with. Another study says that the average homosexual, even when they're having a committed partner, will agree to have very, you know, up to 30 other partners throughout the year. So that's kind of what we're dealing with when we talk about homosexuals. They present it as we just want to be married like a mommy and a daddy. But very rarely, very rarely is that the case. The vast majority, the vast majority, in fact, in the study I was reading yesterday, it says the least amount, the, like the least lowest ranking amount of how many sexual partners the average homosexual has is 36 a year. 36 a year, I mean, uh, that is a lot. Um, so it is a tragedy to try to appease this. So in the church today, even there's an Episcopalian church, the Methodist church, the Quaker church, all of these different things says we want you to feel at home if you're a homosexual, but this is a, a tragedy. Um, let me just kind of read some passages for you to kind of give you a biblical framework for what we're going to talk about. Genesis 1, okay? Let's, if you want to write some of these passages down, I just want to give you the traditional view. Genesis 1, it says, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 27, he created his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves. Then 2, 18 of the Genesis, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a, su a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took out his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman. In Hebrew, man is ish, and woman is isha, which literally means out of man. Woe, man, out of man, ish and isha. For this reason, an ish shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God's design for sex from the very beginning was not for it to be approached with some sort of awkward shame, but for it to be something that we had a joy, a thrill, a pleasure, and a gratitude towards God for making it. Okay, so there's the, this understanding that sex is a good thing made by a good God. Turn over to Genesis 19 if you have, or your Bibles, or just want to read in there. Genesis 19:15. or let's start in verse 12. Then the two men said to Lot, whom, whom else do you have in there? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughter and whoever you have in the city, bring them out of that place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were up to Mary's daughters and said, up out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. Why are they going to destroy the city? 
Why? What's the problem? God destroys uh, a handful of places, but only one in such a way in the entire Old Testament. And it's because in 198 or 195, the people around the city, in 194, it says, surrounded the house, both young and old, and all the people from every quarter. And they called a lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may have relationships with them. But Lot went out from the doorway and shut the door behind him. It's a city that is so deeply entrenched in homosexual revolution that they're banging on the door of Lot saying, bring out those two dudes we don't recognize. Let us have sexual relationships with them. And then in 1924, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all of the valley, and all of the inhabitants of the city, and what grew on the ground. Now, revisionist scholars say something interesting. A revisionist, if, if that's a new term, are people that basically try to take something that's historical and, and rewire and rephrase the way we think about it. So what they would say today, if you go to a number of Christian universities, some that used to have like some sort of a reputation, what they will tell you Ask, if you were asking me the question, why did Sodom and Gomorrah get consumed with fire? Well, it's not because of homosexuality. Well, first of all, that, that's gang rape. You know, that, that's what they were wanting to do. So it's because of that, and it's because of the sin of inhospitality. So a number of Christian universities would tell you that the reason they were destroyed was for the sin of inhospitality. Then I would go like this. I'd did a panel on this, and this is what I said. So I said, okay, well, what do you say about Jude? And it says, verse in 6 and 7, And the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way, same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So what's your response there? And then here's what they say. Well, because the two men in Sodom and Gomorrah were angels then. God, God burned them because they were trying to have sexual relationships with angels, and angels are celibate. And then I look back in here, and I said, they don't know they're angels. They say, bring out the two strangers. And so this is what's happening in a revisionist setting. They're trying to rewrite the Bible. And the traditional view of the Bible is that God consumed Sodom and Gomorrah for great wickedness, which included that of homosexuality. Turn over to Leviticus 18 in the Holiness Code. I want to just give you a kind of an overview of Scripture, and it's important that you know where to find things in the Bible. Because if anybody ever says, the Bible says, the Bible says, always say, show me the money. Where's it at? Where's it at? Where's it at? Don't let anybody just tell you the Bible says. Leviticus 18, verses 19 through 23. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. You shall not have intercourse with her for your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a man as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. And then what, what category is this put in? Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Biblically speaking, the Bible puts homosexuality in the same category as bestiality. It's an abomination to God. It's unfit for the Christian. This is outside of God's design. And here's what people would say. Well, in that same category, they're saying that if someone's unclean, they need to put them outside the camp. If it's a woman on her cycle, then they're also supposed to do all these things. We don't do this in the church anymore, so how does this apply? First of all, before we start broad-stroking things out of the Bible because it's in the Old Testament, what we have to understand is that Jesus shows up on the scene and says he did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. So before we start broad-stroking things we don't like out of the Bible and creating our own Jefferson Bible, we have to have very good reason for why we would no longer live by this. Jesus says not one jot or tittle will be removed, and he came to fulfill all these things. And then he's going to reinforce in Matthew that marriage is between a man and a woman. So these things are important. Deuteronomy, oh, I, actually real quick, uh, Leviticus 20, 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, that's arsenal koitai in the Greek and Septuagint, both of them have surely committed a detestable act and they shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Okay, 
Romans 1, this you know. This is the most extended, likely important passage on homosexuality in the New Testament. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then here's what Paul is going to do in the Greek. Anytime there's a reoccurring word, basically it's, it's telling you, hey, this is what the passage is about. And he's reinforcing a series of exchanges. Things that people did that are unnatural. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Here's the first exchange, or really the first part of it. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they were without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of incorruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They exchanged the glory of God for that of a man. It's the first great exchange. Second here in 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Pause real quick. Why does this matter? Why is it just, uh, it's not just a plastic shell? God has a high value, we talked about this last night, of the body because he made it. And sexual sin is also dishonoring of the body that God made. And we see that, and watch what it'll say as we read the same passage. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them, parodidomai, parodidomai, over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, and watch this, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their heir. What's that? AIDS, monkeypox, you name it. The average lifespan of someone in America who's a heterosexual is 75 years old. Recent statistic, only 2% of homosexuals that live that way for their entire life live to be 65. There is a reality when we dishonor our bodies. God gives people over to their own ways and they plunge themselves down the path of impurity, but ultimately... AIDS are just a byproduct of what's already been revealed in Romans 1, even with the monkeypox debacle. They try to hide it, and um, it's just, it's right there for us. And they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, so God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Watch this. And although they knew the ordinance of God and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice it. That's the culture we live in, right? You're in a Romans 1 society. Not only can you do that, but we give hearty approval to that. 1 Corinthians 6, last passage. Verse 9 and 10 for now. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Pause. That's the word malakos, which has to do with the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. It's someone who is the weaker version, and you know, often in a homosexual relationship, there is the macho, and then there's the passive person, the softer, effeminate. Um, and so Paul's covering the full spectrum here. And then he says, the Malachi's nor homosexuals are synecotai, that's taken from Leviticus, which literally means men who bed with other men. And so anybody reading this would have understood that this is just referring to the Levitical code. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What's at stake here? Eternal destinies, eternal heaven, or eternal hell. I don't know how you could have a subject with any more importance because Paul's making it very clear here. People that live a homosexual lifestyle whether as the effeminate or the homosexual, the macho aggressor in the relationship, they don't know God and they don't go to heaven. We'll get here in a minute, but I, let me just read it now just because I think uh, it's good to come up for air. Verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. 
God is in the business of saving sexual sinners, and churches are full of people that have struggled with this, have been saved and delivered by this. I have multiple students that have struggled with this in the past. They would say their high school, just even career was defined by this homosexual active lifestyle. I have friends and uh, I've been, I interact with people frequently that have been saved from this. And God is in the business of saving sexual sinners. So Paul says, such were some of you, which means that Jesus is not on, you know, in the field of saving healthy people. He's in the field of saving and what, ministering to the sick. So part of the argument from Scripture is the traditional view. And then part of understanding that traditional view is understanding the complementary function that men and women have together. We mentioned this last night, but psychologically, emotionally, physically, and anatomically, the man and the woman are perfect matches. They fit together, and it makes sense. And for that reason, you can't make babies without a sperm and an egg. It doesn't make sense. So whatever people try to change their sex to, or whatever people even marry and want to have the same sex, ultimately civilization, civilization dies when that's the result. And Malachi 2.15 is going to say that one of the reasons that God made the two one flesh is for godly offspring. Procreation is not the sole purpose of marriage, but it would be wrong to say that it is peripheral possibility, a part of God's design. He made it. Now, here's where revisionist scholars even would testify, and this is what's interesting. So whenever I go and talk to someone at like a Point Loma, there's professors at Point Loma that we've had like just battles on this. It's kind of funny. They, they sing songs like, Dear, you're a good, good parent taking Chris Tomlin's song and saying you're a good, good parent because God's non-binary. Or, um, and I, don't, I think there's people that are, are, are solid as well, but even other Christian universities I went to, Dear Heavenly Mother. Um, and so they use types of this scholastic approach to redefine what we've understood. But here's Pim Pronk, who is a raging homosexual and a scholar on the New Testament. Pim Pronk says, wherever homosexual intercourse is in the Bible, it is forbidden and its rejection is a foregone conclusion. Another gay scholar, the Bible text condemns homosexuality unconditionally, and no positive argument for homosexuality can be made in the Bible only by using, I think it's Kevin DeYoung who basically breaks it down into this way, only by saying that texts don't mean what they appear to mean or that we can override culturally what the Bible very clearly says. Now I want to get to some levels of objections because this is, I think, helpful. The argument, number one, of limitation would be the first objection, meaning that there are only a few verses in the Bible that talk about this. Are we making such a big deal about something that's scattered kind of here and there? Well, you know, it's interesting. The Bible talks about bestiality far less than it talks about homosexuality, and it's not the quantity of verses in the Bible that would eradicate its behavior. It's how clear it is in the Bible. So that would be one of the things that we need to understand but when it comes to homosexuality, even this argument of the limited amount of verses, we're not really talking about some obscure verse that's hidden in the corner of Habakkuk. We're talking about something that Jesus talks about when he reinforces what marriage is. We're talking about something that Genesis talks about, all of the law, Leviticus, Deuteronomy 22, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6. And then in Mark, Jesus is going to show up on the scene and says that he condemns the sin of porneia. That would be sexual sin. In Mark 7, 21, and that word porneia is a broad word encompassing every single sexual sin in the Torah, which was unlawful outside of marriage. So Mark 7, 21, he outlaws anything having to do with porneia, which would have included adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and so forth. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality explicitly. And this is where the argument's very clear. Jewish people at that time there was no acceptability for homosexuality. They would have known this. They would have understood the law. They were still waiting for the Messiah. And so when Jesus reinforces the covenant of marriage as established in Genesis 1, what he's essentially doing is saying, hey, the same thing that applied back here regarding marriage and sexuality is the same way it's reinforced now. I came to fulfill the law. Additionally, people use the Jesus trump card that the red letters are more authoritative than the black letters. This is why I don't like red letter Bibles, not like I don't have a conviction against it. But when people say, hey, we're just going to have a Bible study and we're just going to read the red letters, Jesus says in John 10, the scripture cannot be broken. And every single thing in the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So when we develop the system of thought, even for young people today, that the red letters carry more weight and authority and significance than the black letters, we begin to create and cultivate the argument that they're going to later on 
John used to say that Jesus never talked about this. Jesus says in John 5, all of the scripture points to me. So when we live in an environment that says, hey, got you a red letter Bible, read the red letters, that's a dangerous thing to say because that argument is now being used to say that the black letters carry less weight and significance than the red letters. So the argument of limitation, it doesn't talk about it a whole lot. That's just not true, first of all. And the picture of marriage is crystal clear throughout the Bible. Secondly, there's the argument of differentiation. And what I mean by that is that what the Bible talks about is different than what we're dealing with today. And I've already talked about this briefly. But in the Bible, here's what one revisionist scholar says, the Bible doesn't know anything about lifelong committed relationships. They only knew about pederasty, exploitation, slavery, and domination. Pederasty, just pedophilia, an older man with a younger man, not anything like that. First of all, this is an argument from silence, meaning that they're, they're, they're drawing something from really a material that doesn't exist. And what, what we do need to understand is that when Paul is talking about homosexuality in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, there are multiple words that he could have used to condemn homosexuality. One of them very clearly could have been pederasty, but here's what Paul is going to do in Romans 1. He's going to use the verb and the vernacular for passionate emotional love. So if you look back, this is important because people are using this argument. It says, therefore, Romans 1.24, God gave them over in the lust of their bodies to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over in degrading passions. That word for passions is the same word used for erotic love. It's someone who is burning with desire and affection for someone else. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned their natural function of the woman and burned in their desire. Burned in their desire is a key word because what revisionist scholars want you to think is that Romans 1 is outlawing the pedophilic raping of a young slave boy by a Roman centurion, not a committed loving relationship. And Paul's going to just be really clear here. No, this is about an unnatural exchange of affection, crisis in the Greek. It is also not historically accurate to say that homosexuality was exclusively between man and boy relationships. That is an argument from cultural dissonance. Here's what one lesbian New Testament scholar at Brandeis University says. Her name is Bernadette Bruton. She says this, Paul could have believed that the active female partners in a female homosexual bond, the kinodoi, uh, and other sexual unorthodox persons were born that way, and yet he still condemned them as unnatural and shameful. And then watch this. I believe that Paul used the word exchanged to indicate that people knew the natural sexual order of the universe and left it behind. I see Paul as condemning all forms of homoeroticism as the unnatural acts of people who have turned away from God. That's one of the preeminent lesbian scholars. So what does she do with Romans 1? She just says, I don't submit to that authority in my life. Here's an additional passage. Uh, here's Lewis Crompton in his massive book um, on human sexuality. He's a prominent figure in queer studies. He says this, Some interpreters seeking to mitigate Paul's harshness in Romans 1 as condemning not homosexuals, generally only heterosexuals who experienced with homosexuals. Meaning that what Paul's condemning in Romans 1 is not homosexuals that are in a homosexual relationship, but he's condemning heterosexuals, that's man and a woman, who have kind of gone like, hey, I'm going to try this out, and I'm going to be unfaithful to my spouse. He says this, Such a reading, however, well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer imply the least acceptance under any circumstances. The idea that homosexuals can be redeemed by mutual devotion to each other would have been wholly foreign to Paul, any Jew, or early Christian. This is by a gay New Testament scholar. I want to read something for you real quick, too, about what was happening at that time. Sometimes we go, hey, there wasn't, homosexuality wasn't rampant at that point. Amongst Jews, it was an un, universally understood sin, but in the first century, in the Greco-Roman Empire, homosexuality was rampant. Let me just give you some examples. Socrates was a homosexual, very active as were most of the Greek leaders and philosophers. Plato penned an entire section of his symposium on homosexual love. Historians are pretty 
and they're in agreement on this, that Alexander the Great had both male and female lovers, as do most homosexuals. And his army, the soldiers under him, were engaged also in homosexuality, and they were away for sometimes months and years, and they begin to say that part of the argument for why they fought so fiercely is they weren't just protecting their brothers, they were protecting their lovers. Both Gibbon and Toynbee, two of the most prominent historians, say that one of the major contributions to the fall of the Roman Empire was homosexuality. Teutonus says that the historian that 14 out of the first 15 Caesars were homosexuals. It was rampant in Paul's time, and Nero, who would have been the current emperor when Paul wrote this, you can read this on Wikipedia. I mean, like, that's obviously not a reputable source, but if you're looking for like, hey, is this true? It's true. Nero, who was the current emperor when Paul wrote this, had taken a boy named Sporus, had him castrated, then married him as in a full wedding and made Sporus his wife. He must have been a pretty good wife because the next guy, the next Caesar that comes along also takes Sporus as his wife. Paul's world wasn't any different than ours. It was sexually deviant, sexually perverse, homosexuality was rampant. And then here's part of the thing that some revisionist scholars are going to say, sadly, in Christian universities, that Paul is a homophobic man now because he has been suppressing his homosexual desire. So all of the intensity of the language that's being used is because Paul was actually a homosexual and he's mad at God because he can't be one. And that's what we're reading in the New Testament. Paul was not a homophobic or an overreactor. Um, neither am I. Paul just knows that until sin is dealt with and faced as sin, no one can really ever know the Savior. These are the components of the homosexual life. And this is something that you and I need to understand. This isn't an argument of limitation or not necessarily an argument of differentiation. The Bible condemns this clearly. I guess third, we could do the argument of trivialization, meaning is this really that big of a deal? Is this really that big of a deal? Um, yes, it is that big of a deal. As I mentioned, sexual sin is in a far different category. There is no sin like this. This is central, not because homosexuality is central in the Bible, but because it gets to the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Every single doctrine central to our faith has been hotly disputed. But when we talk about sexual sin, it's not like we're talking about whether or not we're going to sprinkle babies or if we have the same view of the millennial kingdom. This is something that's so central to the grand narrative of Scripture, a marriage between a man and a woman and Jesus coming back for his bride, the church. The road to human flourishing is not tolerance, but repentance. In Mark 1, Jesus is going to say, the time is fulfilled and repent, believe in the gospel. I guess last thing, I know I, there's a lot to cover here, but I just want to ask you, what's at stake here? What's at stake? Well, simply, what's at stake in the homosexual conversation is the authority of the Bible. Every single thing the Christian rests their life upon is founded upon a foundation of authority. And what's at stake when we dismiss this is the authority of the Bible itself. Who's, here's Luke Timothy Johnson who supports homosexual behavior, but is also a well-respected, culturally, New Testament scholar. He says this, I think it is important to state clearly that the, to reject the straightforward commands of scriptures and appeal to another authority when we say the same-sex union can be holy and good. And, and he says, or we are appealing to another authority. And he says, and what is that authority? The weight of our own experiences, which allows us to claim that our own sexual orientation is to accept the way that God has made us. He says, when we reject the clear teaching of the Bible, we are disregarding that authority and we're appealing to another authority. What's the authority that I'm appealing to now that I've rejected the Bible as the authority in my life? My own feelings. Here's Gary Dorian's. He says, there are no evangelical churches embracing and approving homosexual behaviors. To come to the place of approving homosexual behavior can only be accomplished on liberal grounds. He's saying that churches that affirm this aren't churches. They're liberals, not in the sense of like liberals politically, but like they're taking a different stance on the scripture. And, and last, I think this is helpful. He's Dearmad McCulloch. He's a gay professor at the University of Oxford. He's a decorated historian and gay man who left the church. He says this is an issue of biblical authority. Despite well-intentioned theological fancy footwork to the contrary, it is difficult to see the Bible as doing anything but disapproving of homosexuality, let alone having any conception of a homosexual identity. 
The only alternatives are either to cleave to the patterns of this life and assumptions set out in the Bible, or to say that in this way the Bible is simply wrong and not authoritative. It's a gay scholar telling you, hey, there's really two options when we talk about the subject. You do what you want, go marry a man, and say the Bible has no authority in your life. Or you submit and cleave to the pattern set out by the Bible. That's a gay scholar, and he's right. And so what happens is we live in a context in a church that's trying to live in some sort of ambiguous middle, saying let's just try to love people, and, and, and this isn't clear. Gay New Testament scholars are universal, I mean, in, in much agreement. I mean, obviously there's people that disagree. But that is a litany of well-respected gay scholars that said, listen, this could not be any more clear. It's universally condemned in the Bible. And you know what? What's at stake here is the authority of the Bible itself. I want to circle back to one thing, and I know we'll have a Q&A time. What can God do with the sexual sinner? He can save them. And so what we need to do is be faithful to in love and in compassion communicate that we are included. You are included amongst those God saved. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were regenerated, and God made us new. And that's what he can do with every sexual sinner today. One of the questions that maybe we'll ask at the Q&A is the difference between having same-sex attraction and living uh, in a way that still honors God. There are people that struggle with that sin that are Christians, and they're tempted in that way. And so that's maybe one of the things that is worth considering at the Q&A uh, time, because that is a more and more prominent thing um, where people say, well, I'm, I'm attracted to the other sex. Does that mean I'm gay? Uh, well, there's a difference between temptation and then falling in submission to those desires, and I think that's worth talking about. But let me pray for us, and then uh, I think uh, Kevin's going to come up. God, we love you, and we're so thankful for your time, uh, for your word, and this time together. God, there's so much more that we could say, but Lord, I pray that this is some sort of uh, wetting of the appetite for further study. God, we're just thankful that when we come to your word, the problem isn't, ah, is there anything to say? It's just trying to figure out how to condense it, because the word of God is so authoritative and so clear and so obvious that this is contradictory and incongruent with your design, and yet, God, you are in the business of drawing sinners to yourself. I'm thankful that you have saved a sinner like me. I pray that we would look at the world with compassion and with love and not with bitterness and contempt. We love you, Lord, and we're so grateful that you love us. We pray this in your name. Amen.